Hello and welcome to the Movie Bunker podcast. It's me, Matt. Hey, it's me, Chris. Did I catch you drinking tea then, Chris? <laughs> yeah, sorry. What, what was surprising about the podcast starting there? Bearing in mind, you just did a three to one engage. <laughs> How are you shocked by this? Should we start again? No, I think that's fine. Okay. <laughs> I'm not doing it again. I meant to say the word bunker without tripping over, so that has to stay in. Hey, Matt, we can't. We've got to be professional. We've got a special guest. We have, yes. Yeah, joining us on today's podcast is Liam Dempsey. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, guys. Happy to be here. Uh, everything all right your end? I know uh, we're all in this strange lockdown situation, but how's things going with you? Just about holding it together, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, slowly going stir-crazy uh, inside my flat, certainly. Uh, but apart from that, I mean, and the thing that's getting us all through at the moment, I think, is movies, surely. D- certainly, I mean, I'm, I'm working from home, so it's not like I've got an inordinate amount of free time but naturally we are spending more time at home so you are fitting in more movies certainly so yeah no that that's kind of the thing getting me through at the moment and you can get you can get through a lot of bad movies as well and to try and find things <laughs> to say about them right yeah. Uh, yeah 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 exactly you can well this will be an interesting discussion on that front i'm sure it will you slag Right, Liam. <laughs> what what do you without going into the movie so far? What what is it you do? What, how, introduce sort of what you do and your podcast and everything else. So yeah, I host a podcast called Spotlight. Uh, it is a Star Trek podcast with a twist. Um, me and the other hosts, Matt and Paul, uh, host it from a non tracky perspective. The idea being that when we started it. We weren't all massive Trekkies or anything like that. We weren't the usual kind of people who would start a Star Trek podcast. Uh, we started it more as a just excuse for us all to hang out. We're kind of all best mates and we've all known each other for around 18 years now or something like that. And, you know, now we all kind of live in different areas and kind of, you know, we've all started kind of relationships and families and stuff like that. And it's that thing of we just wanted an excuse for us to get together. We're all massive film fans. We all did kind of film degrees of one aspect or another. And we just kind of were inspired by James Bonding, uh, Matt Gawley and Matt Myra's podcast, where they went through every single James Bond film one by one. We were like, we want to do... A podcast like that where we're going for a long-running franchise one film at a time we're kind of looking through the long-running film franchises we were like will it be police academy will it be the carry-on series and we we're like no it's gonna be star trek we should do that and also especially as matt had literally never seen any star trek at all apart from literally the first two jj films he'd seen when we started and we're like okay well this is gonna be a really fresh perspective and we will be coming at it with a viewpoint that's not usually heard because most people talking about something like star trek will be hardcore fans so we thought maybe we can offer a fresh perspective on this and plus if we get bored there's only 13 movies we can we could be done with it after that um however we completely fell in love with it and now we've been doing it since summer of kind of 2016 so and the, the podcast has completely evolved um you know we've kind of gone down all kinds of avenues since the movies uh we've started exploring the tv shows uh we've also started a thread of the podcast called spotlight and the movies uh, where we analyse a film uh, that involved a member of Star Trek alumni either in front or behind the camera. So that's that's allowed us to kind of bring in other sorts of movies 
uh, which yeah. has been really, really fun. And on that, we've actually had quite a bit of uh, cross-pollination in terms of guests, I believe, because both Boyd Hilton and Nick Semlin, who have both been on your show, and Sam Clements as well, all came on ours and did Spotlight at the Movies uh, choices. I think Nick did Inner Space, Boyd did Showtime, and Sam did Passenger 57. Oh, cool. And they're all decent yeah, movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, jealous. Well, yeah. This is the thing because I mean, your whole podcast is you. You've kind of built a rod for your own backs here, really. Yeah, yeah. we didn't think it through. If we're honest with ourselves, <laughs> <laughs> I had no, I had no idea what I was getting ourselves into, and I was, I had a very serious bout of um, tonsillitis or or some sort of cyst in my throat. So I had a lot of time off work, and I was quite delirious. And I was listening to a lot of movie podcasts, and I said. I could do this, and so I, I, I Matt had done a podcast in the past, a footy, uh, uh, football, uh, quite a successful football podcast, and um, I tapped him up to, to to join me in this, and we never, I never thought that it would be as in depth or involved as or time consuming. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think I would have bothered. I was waiting for the illness to illness to subside and actually get on my my real life. Um, but yeah, it does open up a massive different world, and uh, yeah, we've we've been so lucky. And like you said, you never think it's got legs until it starts to get an audience, and then uh, away you go. It's good. It's good. Yeah, who would have thought there'd have been an endless supply of bad films, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who could have seen that coming? Yeah, no, it's exactly. That. I mean, it's been fantastic just in terms of the way. I think one thing we were always worried about: we thought surely we won't be accepted by the kind of Star Trek community. They'll be like, "You don't know nothing. You don't know what you're talking about." But actually, we've kind of been welcomed in because I think people like that we're approaching it from a fresh perspective. And what it has allowed us to is actually get quite a lot of people involved in Star Trek on the show as well, because I think that when we do interviews uh, with people involved in that world, we're kind of approaching it from this non-checking perspective. So we're kind of not asking them the questions they would usually be asked. Uh, so we've had the producer of Star Trek II, the Roth of Khan on, uh, Robert Salen. Uh, we've also had Shazad Latif recently, who plays Ash Tyler in Star Trek Discovery, one of the kind of leads in that. And yes, yeah, it's, it's been really, really fun. <laughs> It's quite a, a big shift in terms of uh, theme of movie to in terms of what you've chosen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think, is, is there any Star Trek connection to the film that you've chosen? To, I, mean, we... I don't think so. Surely Ray Winston's been in Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, surely. Surely, <laughs> surely Winston's been in that. Well, what, in, what's the movie you've uh, chosen, Liam? So the movie I've chosen is the 2012 big screen remake of The Sweeney. <laughs> you, can't, you can't just say The Sweeney, Liam. You have to do The Sweeney. <laughs> you have to do The Winstone. We're The Sweeney. We're cops. I'm robbery in progress. Get him out! But we do things our way. 30 seconds! I'm positioned ready to move. We're undermanned, underarmed, and underpaid. But we still do things you can only dream of. You're nicked. I'd like to give a warm welcome to Detective Ivan Lewis from Internals. (laughs) The problem is the tactics you employ. There's even talk of baseball bats. The problem is the collateral damage. 
I'll tell you anything. So what do you want to do? Shut us down? Easy, Jack. <laughs> oh, I'm easy. Everybody on the floor. It's an execution. He has killed, and he will kill again. This is our man, wanted for robbery across Switzerland, Italy, and France. How'd you replay this? Very low key, no trouble. Hey there, sweetheart. Where is he? Where can I find him? There is one fact you're overlooking. I think you've got the wrong man. Ramifications of your careless actions are gonna have severe repercussions. I think I found your weak point. No, you felt my glasses. Your unit suspended pending further investigation. I want a gun and a badge. This guy is guilty. I'm gonna get him. I don't talk to the police. I ain't the police no more. Destroy you, Regan. Now you tell them I'm coming after them. I'm coming after all of them. If you're in the UK, you would probably recognise The Sweeney as being a really popular TV a show from the 70s um, and it was a, a really gritty uh, I think it was ITV series I think to be honest I'm trying to think whether it was uh, BBC I or ITV I think it was I yeah in fact it definitely was ITV because it had adverts on it so yeah, it was ITV John Thor and Dennis Waterman Waterman sorry that's like kind of real main players in British television uh, history I would say in terms of what they've done and how much influence they've had on I don't know, me as a 40-year-old, 40 40-something man, they were in pretty much every popular programme that I watched as a kid. But yeah, I mean, th- this movie takes a lot of its cues from that in terms of its general premise. Because if you look at the sort of plot synopsis of, of the, the original Sweeney, it's all there, like, you know, flying squad, police um, division, using methods that are underhanded and often illegal, frequently violent and not often, or often or not, uh, sorry, more often than not, successful. Let's talk about the director, Nick Love. And he he's credited as being the writer as well. Uh, yeah, he, I mean, John Hodge uh, wrote the original script, uh, the writer of Shallow Grave and Train Spying. Um, and then I believe that Nick Love did a kind of rewrite on it. Um, so I, I'm not quite sure how much of John Hodge's original script survives. Um, but Nick Love, you, you, I mean, you can certainly feel the Nick Love vibe uh, yeah. from the script, certainly. And, you know, in general, if you look back over his films, he does tend to write and direct. Uh, he doesn't tend to work from someone else's script. So I would imagine that he did do a kind of full pass on it. He's done sort of uh, The Football Factory, he produced Monsters, and he's doing a Sky series at the moment, Bulletproof 2, which I think is a pretty good review. So he's, he's, he knows what he's doing in terms of this good kind of... remake of The Firm as well, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. Nick Love is a very interesting director to me. Um, the first film I saw of his was The Football Factory uh, back in the day. I mean, that was a hugely 
popular film on DVD release um, when it came out. I, I believe that literally he never has to work again because of the kind of DVD sales on The Football Factory when that came out. It was absolutely massive because it was made for a really small budget as well. It was made for about half a million, I think, mm. um, Football Factory. And it, it's one of those films that I remember seeing it and it being a, a, quite a cult film when it came out. And I didn't, I, I don't particularly care for The Football Factory. I think it's in, incredibly derivative and you know, all its kind of, uh, I think it's kind of all the worst kind of loud culture elements uh, in The Football Factory. It's not my kind of football hooligan film, which is very much something like Alan Clark's The Firm, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but what I think you can see there is you can see a kind of raw filmmaking talent um, with the way it's made and stuff. There is interesting stuff there. And if you go back to his debut feature, Goodbye Charlie Bright, that's a really decent kind of just kitchen sink kind of movie um, on its own, but with a real kind of uh, filmmaking flash and verve to it. Um, I really like Goodbye Charlie Bright. And, but as his career went on, he became very much a joke in the industry, I would say, um, especially around the time of Outlaw, uh, his 2007 vigilante film starring Sean Bean, uh, which opened to, I mean, horrifically savage reviews that came out, like so, so bad. And it is a, it is a terrible fucking film 100% <laughs> and uh, it became most famous for the DVD commentary uh, he's well worth tracking down on YouTube it is Nick Love and Danny Dyer making absolute fools of themselves <laughs> in this commentary uh, basically just ranting uh, really aggressively about the bad reviews and stuff and it's just it, it's absolutely abysmal it, kind of, it completely <laughs> sums up that nuts zoo lads mad culture of that time very much yeah. so um but i've actually met nick love because uh i did a film production degree uh at the at the time it was called the arts institute in bournemouth and it's actually the same degree that nick loved it at the same university uh, but he would have been there about kind of 15 years before me something like that mm. and uh, he came back as a lot of kind of alumni do um, to kind of do a kind of lecture uh, on film as he'd obviously gone away and you know say what you like about his films he'd obviously been very financially successful uh, he runs Vertigo Films which as you say produces monsters and lo loads of big kind of indie hits and he came back, he gave this lecture, and he actually came across as a really interesting, uh, nice guy who had some really interesting stuff to say about filmmaking and his approach. And during the Q&A, I actually asked him, because of the fact that during his lecture, he made a point of saying the reason he made Outlaw was he was really worried about the kind of, you know, the time, the, the chav epidemic that was going on like in the hmm. noughties and kind of you know increasing youth violence and stuff and that's why he made the film and I kind of asked him this question where I pointed out to him that the main audience for his movies seemed to be those kind of people so didn't that worry him <laughs> slightly and and he completely owned up to it and said yeah it does like you know really it really worries me and that's why uh, the films I'm planning at the moment um, you know are going to have more of a kind of anti-violence kind of message to them and stuff and literally 
what he made next after that was his remake of The Firm, the Alan Clark football hooligan film, which is the absolute antithesis of um, Football Factory, uh, where that is, it's almost like This Is England with football hooligans, essentially, his remake of it. It's a very different film to the Alan Clark original, though it follows a similar plot. And literally the message of that film by the end it is a very anti-violence message and actually that this is a really bad idea of football hooganism is bad and has terrible, violence has terrible consequences and stuff like that. So that's very much the message of the film, which is completely the opposite of Football Factory in a lot of ways. And I, when I saw that, I was like, you know what? You've put your money where your mouth is. You kind of have matured as a filmmaker. And mm. since then, I've been kind of really following what he's done since, kind of thing, with, with interest and think he has evolved as a filmmaker since. And then there's the Sweeney. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, uh, this is exactly it. This is where I'm going to come out for the Sweeney, uh, baseball bat in hand, uh, <laughs> is that the Sweeney, I think, very much has that message. Because at the end of the day, the whole film is about you know this really uh, violent group of cops who will do anything to get the job done and everything like that. And, you know, they're kind of... It, essentially, you think, you believe that they would potentially kind of, you know, kill criminals, what whatever they need to do. And at the end of the film, kind of spoilers, essentially, uh, Raymond says character, he has the choice of whether to get kind of, you know, deadly revenge, and he doesn't do it. And he kind of steps away from that side of things and kind of compromises his kind of original way he was at the beginning of the film. And I think that's the takeaway from it, that he kind of grows up a little bit by the end of that movie. Yeah, I think you're right. You definitely see a progression of his character in this movie. Um, yes. But there isn't a much of a progression of anybody else, I'd say. He's like front and centre in terms of, of what's going on uh, in terms of development. Matt, do you want to delve into the uh, the, the cast? Because I... It's quite a decent cast, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, um, you've got, obviously, Ray Winston, uh, like you say, front and centre. Um, Plan B is in this. Um, it doesn't do too badly. Um, I'm try- trying to think of the Michael Caine film he was in, where he was like... Harry a, Brown. Harry Brown, where he's a proper wrong in that. Um, <laughs> uh, Hayley Atwell's in this. People recognise her from, obviously, the Marvel films. Stephen McIntosh, people recognise him from literally everything that's on television, pretty much. <laughs> Um, Damien Lewis is kind of like the main boss. Is it probably be like yeah, the DCI, the main the main cheese in the in, yeah. the, in the film. Um, but yeah, it's just sort of like quite a lot of it's just a lot of the English sort of alumni. Uh, Steve Wallington's in it. Alan Ford, who 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 could not have got a part in this movie. As soon as I saw oh, him, brickhead. <laughs> <laughs> he, he when he turns up, it's it's definitely um, not a surprise. But um, so. I think in terms of in terms of the cast, for me, I was like, ah, oh, this is pretty decent in terms of who's here, or what they're doing, and what they're being asked to act with. Liam, would you say that the script is up to scratch for them to do anything with it, or is it quite perfunctory? Or uh, uh, see, I, I I like the the script. I think that um, it is. I think the plot is reasonably by the numbers, hundred yeah. um, percent. But I think that Nick Love has. Uh, a kind of unique vernacular to his scripts and I think straight away you can tell that it's one of his scripts with the kind of dialogue you know whether yeah I think that could be a good and a bad thing 
I think sometimes he writes some really horrible uh, <laughs> dialogue. I mean, it kind of opens immediately, like the opening scene is this kind of horribly misogynistic conversation <laughs> between yeah, yeah, yeah. the kind of main coppers. But I, I kind of think that's the whole point. I think he writes with a kind of deliberate authenticity um, to his characters who might actually not be the nicest people in the world. Uh, I think that's what he's trying to capture. Um, so I think the plot is varied by the numbers, but I think, you know, I do quite enjoy quite a lot of the geezery dialogue that's peppered throughout this. The issue I had with the, the opening scene, um, the because it, it starts right off, right? This is a, like a, an armed robbery going off and um, the, the, uh, the flowing squad, uh, Sweeney, they can literally busted in with zero regard for like any <laughs> yeah. any potential hostages. And then I, I counted at least two incidents of people throwing weapons. Like at one point someone literally chucks a gun at someone else. Um and then uh plan B George Carter's character's chasing after a guy and at one point because he's carrying a pickaxe handle because that's kind of their thing, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He lazzes that after him as well. It's just like, why are people, everyone's just so keen to throw away their weapons? And then uh, Ray Winston shows um, some sort of uh, superhero ability of actually like snatching the bad guy through the wall. <laughs> He's like Terminator. Well, this is his like Daniel Craig in Casino Royale moment, isn't it? Coming through the wall, like brute force strength straight away. Yeah. I mean, this, this film is maximum Winstone. Oh yeah, uh, like I, I'm a really big fan of Ray Winstone. I think he can be a very, very good actor. Um, I think this is very much leaning into kind of the, the cliche of what Winstone is often thought to be, <laughs> which is the absolute maximum geezer kind of mentality. I mean, I don't think his voice has never sounded deeper. He sounds like he's downed about kind of 10 crates of whiskey before each scene has been shot. Yeah. Um, but I love it. I think he is, <laughs> I, I think he is the perfect person to play Jack Regan now. I don't really think, I mean, there's loads and loads of quite big names bandied about um, for this remake for years because it's got a long story production history before yeah. Winston was settled on. But I think he's the kind of perfect person to take over from John Four in the 70s, 100%. I have to say, I was um, sick in my mouth a little bit um, <laughs> when the relationship between um, him <laughs> and Hayley Atwell kind of started oh to surface. I'm like, God. oh no. She's looking at her dad a bit weird. And then, where, where are they going? It's like, oh, God, no. Please, no. I mean, yeah, we, we've got to talk about this. Because, I mean, this is this is a big a big thing from the film. Um, Hayley Atwell, uh, 25 years uh, with Stones Jr., is having yeah. a full-blown affair uh, with Winstone's character in this. And, I mean, it, straight away, I remember seeing it for the first time in the cinema... And just instantly go, what? <laughs> what? Like, it's, it's, it's genuinely difficult to believe, isn't it? Yeah, this yeah. Is, it's, this it's is not the easiest sell. Like, of all of the weird bullshit that happens in this film, this is the hardest thing to swallow. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> this is the most unbelievable thing that happens in the whole film. Absolutely. Um, It's so weird because... <laughs> Uh, it does seem completely mad, but then again, her um, husband in the film yeah. is played by Stephen McIntosh, who is fifteen years older than her. Yeah. Um, so I kind of thought, 
maybe she's just got a thing for older men. You know, like, yeah, that would certainly, it would be especially weird if the guy she was, uh, her husband was a really, really young guy, her own age or something. Yeah. But this just made me think, oh, maybe, yeah, she's just into older guys. Uh, <laughs> and the funniest part about it is it's not even like they try and kind of polish Winston up a little bit no. to, to no. kind of make it more believable. We literally open the, the scene after they first sleep together is him in his pants uh, on, on a sofa, <laughs> kind of, you know, full beer belly, like in show. And it's kind of just going, it, no, it, he has literally gone to seed everything, like, and yet Hayley Atwell's character still clearly thinks he is absolute sex on legs. Well, the thing is, as well, I don't think it really... Obviously, there's a plot device to get him to show, like, his his human side. And obviously, he, he cares deeply for the character, Nancy Lewis. Yes. Um, and is desperate for them to have, you know, uh, to come out, essentially, and, and, and declare their love for each other and, and, um, and move in together. That's his plan. But I think... It didn't need it didn't need to be this sort of plot device. I think they could have done it in a different way, and potentially they had a sort of different kind of relationship. Maybe instead of having uh, Ben Drew or, or Plan B, George Carter, I'm going to have these three names now, um, <laughs> as being kind of like his understudy. Maybe there could have been room there to have Hayley Atwell as being basically an up and coming copper uh, that he took uh, like under his wing and stuff, um, and that could have brought a better dynamic to the situation because this is completely unbelievable. Now, I watch. I don't often watch movies for the podcast with my wife, but on this occasion, she did sit and watch it with me, and oh, thoroughly, man. yeah, thoroughly, <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed it. For Christ's sake! Um, oh, did she? Yeah, she thought it was a right hoot. Um, Incredible. Yeah, um, and I was like, what? She said, I don't like anything like this normally, but I just think it's the lockdown. I think it's the, <laughs> it's it's everything. It's like he she. Completely bought the character, uh, Jack, his transition. She loved all the little tweaks about, you know, him having a, a Waldorf salad or whatever. It was a nut salad when everyone else was oh, having Oh, yeah, the, the pear salad. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and obviously being wanting to lose weight and wanting to be a better man and getting emotional. Um, <laughs> but I, I was sore through it all, but... Uh, yeah, I just think yeah, you know, as soon as you see him bearing down on her, with, you know, oh his, god, with his, don't with say his, it like that, <laughs> with his yellow pants on, <laughs> his little yellow pants, it is it is hard to, to watch, I think, and it did take a little, well, it took me out of the film. <laughs> I was in it. Do you know what lockdown's down to my brain, right? Because I, I saw this and I thought to myself, I've, I've got to work out, um, I got to see what the age gap is between these people, right? So what I did is like, I, I took Ray Winston's age and then worked out how old this film is, and then started before realizing age difference is fucking constant <laughs> so I'm like I was trying to work out how about the age difference would have been when this was filmed I'm like what the fuck am I doing <laughs> well I remember when Mark uh, Kermode reviewed this he said this is a film about Ray Winstone in his pants yeah. and, uh, and he, he meant that as a compliment and, and I agree <laughs> you know, in I, I actually but I think what he meant by that is the fact that actually it fools you into thinking that Ray Winstone's character is just going to be nothing but bristling, uh, bristling machismo. And actually, 
I'm I'm right there with your wife on this one because <laughs> I, I think he is like a wounded bear in this film. Like the whole thing about the the conversation that they have about him potentially losing weight, I think he comes across as really kind of insecure, quite sensitive about his weight. He obviously feels the age gap. And I think if anything, that, that sold me more on their relationship, that he was clearly feeling that. And then the moment where Plan B slaps him, in the face uh, later mm. he's just and he's so ashamed so ashamed because obviously we, spoiler we should say Hayley Atwell's character gets tragically fridged in this film <laughs> it's, to be fair that that is signposted <laughs> like quite yes. a way into yeah, the film it's like, you start seeing symbols go hold on she's gonna die <laughs> but I think the scene where she does die is very effectively done I think Ray Winslow's performance when he's in trapped he's kind of trapped in the car um, yeah. when it happens so he can't do anything to stop it I think it's really really good and I think I think he shows a real that there's something underneath all of that kind of outer machismo deep inside him um, that whole car park a... scene's got quite a huge amount of suspense to it as well because I, I think yeah. maybe because of the, the, the foreboding that you know she's probably going to get it at some point um, and it, I think obviously... she I think I think she dies early, too early, and I think once she does die, I think it loses a, a lot of the air goes out in the movie. It sort of goes a bit deflated for me, especially when he goes into prison as well. Because uh, <laughs> prison a, bit, he goes, he gets arrested for something which I don't really understand. How I didn't really understand that plot point, but um, it lost a bit of momentum that whole sort of third act, and then it kind of picked up at the end when he was released with his fake ID and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I think it ran out of steam a bit, didn't it? Because it it's a long movie as well. It's not a short night yeah, minute. Yeah, it's two hours. The, the thing I had is issues with, and I'm, I'm, I may have missed something because I kind of watched it in two pieces, is that the whole kind of subplot, like the big bad in it is like um, they, they're doing this bank robbery. But there's kind of like this inference that like uh, Regan's been set up in some way. But I couldn't really see like what he's been set up it's like like he's not been framed the thing he goes to prison for he actually fucking did I mean, <laughs> yeah. the thing about this is the film is like everyone in there to begin with i mean if they sort of like change some of the sort of angles and maybe use different music everyone in it is a bad guy could be a good guy and if it's a good guy it could be a bad guy because they're not oh, yeah. particularly likable are they to begin with oh i, I note here matthew is uh, they're all pricks I mean, I, I found myself completely siding with Stephen McIntosh uh, the day he wants to I was like, I would do the same. These guys need to be fucking... They need they, reined in. Reined in and sort of someone needs to go in there and just say, look, guys, this isn't what you do. Uh, the, the way they orchestrate themselves and talk to general public and stuff like that is completely unforgivable. It's not the right, it's not the right image for the police and the police want, is it? And ultimately, they don't have... All the surveillance they do comes down to absolutely fuck all because at the end of the day, <laughs> they'll just burst in there with a baseball bat and no wonder everything goes so bloody wrong all the time. I mean, how can it go right? they they just got no, no idea what they're doing. <laughs> I think the, the thing I really like about this film is how it looks and how it sounds in a lot of ways in terms of, I think the cinematography is awesome um the guy did it uh simon dennis 
Uh, he's a director of photography on Peaky Blinders, uh, which is a beautiful looking TV show. And I think the London nightscapes here and everything straight away looked really, really cool. And I think at the time, back in 2012, not many people were really shooting London the way they do in this film. Um, in a sort of, you know, basically approaching it because it's clear that Love is very influenced by Michael Mann, uh, 100%. You know, he's clearly trying to kind of do his own heat here in many ways, like during the big high sequence and stuff in yeah, Trafalgar that's, Square. Yeah, that's very heaty, right? Yeah, oh yeah, extremely. So it takes all its cues from that. And, you know, but not many people in Britain were doing those kind of films here at the time. Um, Aaron Creevy also brought out a film around this time, Welcome to the Punch, that kind of attempted to do a similar thing. And I also love Lorne Balfe's score to this movie. I think it's a really... I mean, he's one of Zimmer's kind of disciples, basically, who's come down uh, from his tutelage and is now making it big. He did the score to Mission Impossible Fallout as well, which is a really, really good score. I did make um, a note that the score was really good on this, actually. It's very Hans Zimmer-esque, um, as a lot of composers uh, seem to be these days. Uh, but I, it, it elevates the film for me, along with the look of it. Um, and the actors in the cast, I think that's the thing. I think the, the fact that they got such a good cast together, great score, really good cinematography, and also the action sequences themselves, I think are really well put together. Because what you've got to consider with this movie is that at a three million budget, which is low, for this type of movie straight away, but Nick Love actually brought it under budget. It was ma- it ended up being made for under two million. Okay, and I think if you compare that with kind of you know it, the the huge kind of budgets that a crime movie of this sort would usually have, I think what he's achieved on that kind of budget visually is incredibly impressive. Well, yeah, we just did um, Master of Disguise, and that cost sixteen million. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that that's say I've seen films that have cost ten times this that haven't looked as good yeah. as this does. At the end of the day, I think you know you, he's got a massive shootout in Trafalgar Square. There's the um, really really great car chase at the end through the trailer park. Um, there's a big car chase earlier on as well. The actual uh, car chases, I think, were done with the involvement of the car production team behind Top Gear uh, as well. And they do they do look really, really good. They're really impressive. Um, and I, I, I think it, it just, just achieves... I'm a big fan of films that achieve a huge amount on a tiny budget in comparison to a lot of bigger films. It's why, I mean, The Raid 2 was made for four and a half million, and it looks absolutely incredible. And you just think that is just basically showing people that there's no excuse for a film of that type to cost over a hundred million, because look what can be achieved. It's interesting we actually picked up this film now because um, I started um, to watch that, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, The Gangs of London. Uh, sort of short series yes. of D-Bob which um, is similar in the sense that um, it's a film like a, an English style film but with a very different action style um, like you said this one picks up on very much like the Michael Mann heat kind of stuff um, whereas uh, The Gangs of London is very much along the line of the raid in terms of it hits its action peaks uh, it's, it's, it... well it's directed by Gareth yeah, Evans yeah. of course so yeah, yeah, and I've only seen the first episode, 
Um, but yeah, in terms of yeah, visually, it was incredibly impressive. I mean, there's never been fight scenes like that on British TV, no, has there? No, at the end of the day, quite surprising. I expected a couple of uh, slaps and a few you slags, but I'm <laughs> 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 more than that. I'm kind of saving this, uh, saving that one until I'm until I can watch at least two or three episodes in, in one go. I think it's, it's going to be super violent like <laughs> definitely it's definitely you want to have with a beer in your hand because uh, you need something to settle your nerves because it is it is it is intense yeah it is crazy violent like during the first major action sequence in it i think me and my missus just constantly went oh <laughs> ah! like, that is that is the soundtrack through. of that series right just like oh jesus <laughs> christ <laughs> With a dart! Um, <laughs> I mean, all, all of the episodes have dropped now, so they, they are kind of like... Oh, cool. Yeah, in, you can have it all at once. bingeable form. Oh, that's um, my weekend story. Yeah, I mentioned uh, that Simon Dennis uh, was the DOP on this, who also does Peaky Blinders. Also, of course, the main bad guy, Paul Anderson, plays Arthur he's always in good. Peaky yeah. Blinders as well. So he's another really good actor who's in there. Not like um, old Plan B, though, is he? <laughs> <laughs> you, you've got something against yeah, that. What's but, the yeah, well, 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 yeah, what's the matter? Well, don't stick up for him. <laughs> but, um, he, he just, he's just too full of himself, isn't he? That's the thing. Um, it, I wanted to start, ask him to open his eyes or look like <laughs> he hasn't just crawled out of bed or he's smoked, smoked a scrappy do or something. He looked... I mean, I just, I don't know. I just, I didn't buy him at all. And I don't, I, I didn't like it. I just don't like the guy. He's got a sleepy look to him, hasn't he? Yeah, he's but got, it's, 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 it's in he? Yeah, but it's inconceivable. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Everyone keeps coming up to him saying, you're going places and your career's going through the roof. And I'm thinking, no, I wouldn't even do it. Just, just for the look of him, I would just basically do whatever I could to hold him back. If he was anyone on my team... <laughs> I'd be like, what's wow. being revealed on this podcast is that you're extremely prejudiced yeah. against working class people at the moment. Yeah, you just don't like street people, do you? That's your problem. <laughs> no, sorry. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, this I think... is the last film he ever acted in, I should say. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm being a bit too harsh. I mean, I've shown my true colours on the podcast. Uh, um, I just don't like him. I don't think he. I don't think he works. But I don't. I don't think he's alone in this film. I think it was we pointed out, like no one in this film is particularly likable. Like they had mm. to make the bad, no. the, the big bad guy be particularly reprehensible just so that he would stand out from everybody else in this film. Um, mm. yeah, maybe Hayley Atwell is probably, and Damien Lewis's character probably come out as, as having some sort of likability to them, <laughs> but the rest yeah, of Yeah, he's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, I, I, I always like to um, sort of like uh, apply this, you know, with these sort of films where we have sort of like a, a good versus evil. Like, what if they didn't do anything, right? So if the, if the, the flying squad didn't exist, what would have happened? Would it have been much worse than if they did exist? So like, if they didn't exist, then fundamentally a, a, a weird offshore bank would have got robbed and no one would have really cared. Um, but because they did exist, about 80 people died. <laughs> 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 So I don't know. Like, I, 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 yeah, I don't know if they come out on top on this one. <laughs> what's that? Is that what's that film, Matthew? That's similar. It's like the, the whole plot of the film is happens because of the the main protagonist. And if he wasn't there, is it Indiana Jones or something? Where well, they, yeah, the Reddit's are lost. Aren't they say if he did nothing, if he just stayed at home, then the same thing would have happened. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just a waste of time. But I think I've seen I've seen a good debunking of that theory actually recently on Twitter. Where um, it was, uh, they would have found it properly. Um, they'd have had the warning that Indy had, so they wouldn't have all been 
had their face melted off. But okay, so, uh, I prefer my version. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite characters uh, played by Stephen McIntosh. That's what I'm taking away from this uh, episode of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's yeah, a... I, I can't believe you sided <laughs> with McIntosh. Like, well, you know, he's just he's such a straight lace yes. type guy, isn't he? That's just yes. that's just Chris at work. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but also, he also needs to get laid because as we find out at the very beginning of the movie that uh, his wife Nancy Haley Atwell they've not had sex for over 12 months so I think he's probably two, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Two, yeah so he's he's, pro- he's probably he's probably a little bit stressed in that situation <laughs> I mean he's very he's very buttoned up yeah. isn't he at the yeah, end of the yeah. day he looks like he's, his tie is tied up tight right up to his neck <laughs> like all the time that, that that's the whole thing he's the complete opposite of Winstone's kind of copper isn't he like he turns around to he says uh, what, what what's it you say um, it's like oh we still do the things that you can only do you fucking yeah. cunt slag <laughs> they go let's have a look at your balls nah don't look big enough to yeah. <laughs> oh god yeah. the thing is he just kind of stands there as well I'd be like no don't look at my balls. Oh, yeah, he's just standing there <laughs> pissing himself, isn't he? To be honest with you, like, if, Ray, um, if Ray Winston wants to look at mine, I'd, I'd have to. I think I'd have to because <laughs> I'm scared shitless of him. You'd have actually would have presented them for well, him. That's the thing, like Winston, he's he's still got it, hasn't he? He's still an intimidating presence, even yes. now, hundred percent. And I think that that's why he, he sells it for me in this is film. He's got Ray Winston has that kind of lumbering. Um, insanely masculine kind of feel to that James Gandolfini had very much. Uh, he, I mean, he is sort of kind of the British Gandolfini in a lot of ways. I think <laughs> that does, um, yeah, definitely. That does know. drop at one scene though, doesn't it? Because like at one point, um, after the meal, and he's um, oh Jesus, he's he's um, trying to give uh, Nancy Lewis one. Um, he falls into the fatal sock error. Where he <laughs> he's forgotten to take his socks off first, so he's there pants, socks, and shirt, and it's just like, oh no, he's fallen into baby, the come trap. Here. Oh, come here, it's business time, baby. <laughs> no, they're well, yellow. Of course, uh, the whole reason for the interlude in the prison was blatantly just so they could pay tribute to Scum. Yes, where he starts filling up his socks ready for some hardcore prison violence and then the guard comes in and goes oh don't worry about that and he goes fine right, yeah, so yeah, that's obviously why they, why they turns into that. a bit of porridge yeah um, I don't um, I, I, I didn't really understand why he went to prison well I, I, I do understand why he went to prison um, I don't understand why the prison guard was so against him at all because there's no reason for him to have been oh you're going to general pot mate um and then I don't understand how he got out of prison. <laughs> it's like the, the whole thing is like, how did he get in there? Why did he get out? I mean, and then is uh, Damien Lewis's character phones him up and says sorry. He's like, why are you apologising to him? This man's an absolute brute. He deserves to be in prison. I mean, I'm, I'm very surprised he managed to get his badge back at the end, really. <laughs> but you know, they said it, essentially it feels like set up for a sequel, doesn't it? At yeah. The yeah. End, yeah. Um, when he gets his badge back, the whole team's back together. 
and he kind of shoves the badge in Macintosh's face like yeah look at that mate and uh, they have a little moment don't they when he's in the car and he kind of sees him in the rear view mirror and it's kind of like oh okay we're still it's hard to tell at that point whether that was them having a moment of mutual respect or if it was a case of oh we're still at loggerheads and now you know we're going to be kind of arch enemies going <laughs> yeah I think I think it was definitely set up for a, like a sequel to say well you know you're not I've, I've got yeah you've won this battle but you've not won the war sort of thing i got a question for you both um how how do you feel about like the sort of massive sort of americanization of like the police force and even like the language and everything else used in this because i mean obviously they're trying to sell it a little bit more on on the state side and to do that you have to you know you, you have to have the police running around carrying guns um they there was a, a lovely, wonderful, cliche scene where he actually, someone actually shouts out, "Give me your gun and badge," <laughs> which um, yeah. I, I don't think would exist <laughs> in an actual English thing. It's like because you, you don't carry your gun around, right? It's, it's locked away, and you have to sign it out through various uh, forms. But um, can <laughs> we can we forgive the Americanization of this to try and make more money out of it? Well, I think I'm. I think I I'm used to it because if you watch a lot of the, the sort of current British um, crime dramas that are on the TV, they're very stylized and they're very much in the same sort of vein as this was. This is now. I think this this uh, this kind of genre on TV is trying to emulate the kind of you know stylings of this movie. So I'm I kind of didn't notice. It wasn't something that really jumped out at me. I thought it was inconceivable and a bit you know unbelievable. But I was kind of I was already on a downward slope with plan B and uh, <laughs> well, and, 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 the, and the orange pants anyway. So, <laughs> I mean, I think with the Americanization, uh, I think it gets away with it because uh, Nick Love brings his kind of geezery vernacular to the script so much that you, you know, all the time you're like, well, I'm, I'm definitely in Britain at the end of the day, this isn't America hundred percent. So you kind of forget all that I find. Mm. Yeah, I agree. That's I agree. why it was it's kind of strange, though, isn't it? Because you have to, like quite a lot of like the the police force themselves were Americanized to try and make them look more attractive. But then the English, uh, the, the sort of slang and everything else used, was so English that I imagine an American person watching this would be completely confused. I mean, we recently did. Well, they need subtitles. <laughs> they would. Yeah, we recently did Green Street um, on the podcast, and um, yes, I heard. Yeah, they they have um, they had a scene in that where obviously they they they're all talking Cockney rhyme and slang, um, but then obviously because there's an American present, they have to explain it. But uh, it's used just literally as a scene in itself. It's never you know they never talk in that way outside of that to try and have a greater reach of audience. So it kind of seems like it's weird for this film to be so English and yet have these sort of tag-ons of the uh, the Americanization on top of it. Yeah, I mean, the Americanization in this, I think, is less about selling it to American audience and more about Nick Love wanting to emulate Michael Mann and those kind of American crime films, I think. Yeah. I don't think he's particularly... Okay, despite the fact that, I mean, I think this did have uh, American money behind it, I think. Um, or at least maybe it did at the start. I think originally it was meant to be a Warner Brothers project. I'm not sure. I've got a feeling that in the end it wasn't. I think originally it was a Warner Brothers project with a much bigger budget 
and then they dropped out and so Vertigo did it themselves hence the much smaller budget I, I've got a right. feeling that's right um, because this like I say this was in development hell for, for, for years and loads of, if you, you have a look for all the different kind of cast announcements after this there were loads of different people who were meant to be in it who are huge names um, even though it ended up still quite a starry cast it's got Ed Scrine in it as well uh, in a small role, yeah. um, who almost forgot to mention, who now, of course, is starring in like really awards-worthy films like um, uh, Bill Street uh, and stuff. He's in he's in that as the crop copper. But I didn't realise it was made for such a small budget. That is a feat of miracle, to be fair. Okay. Yeah, completely. And Nick Love has always worked on small budgets. I've. I've got a feeling that still, even now, his biggest budget is still his first film. Because right. Goodbye Charlie Bright um, was made in the, I think, I think 99, I think maybe. And that was made for 5 million, I think. And because it was at a time, because there's this weird crossover pre-digital where everything was shot on film. There are movies that were made for, you know, a reasonably, like that was made for 5 million. It doesn't look anywhere near as good as this does because obviously it's cheaper to shoot digital. Yeah. So instantly, as soon as digital came along, it allowed kind of, you know, reason to make something on a reasonably small budget that looked far more expansive and bigger. And I think also because of the Sweeney name, being a very kind of, it, it's a brand basically because people everyone knows in Britain knows what the Sweeney is and it was a very very popular show um, that there are lots of different people wanted to get involved so the, the guys behind Top Gear wanted to come and help with the action sequences Ford uh, Motors gave like you know their cars uh, to it and everything for like, much cheaper or free or whatever so you get much higher production value than you usually would if that if you didn't have that kind of name branding on it and Marks and Spencer's provided Ray Winston's pants right <laughs> yeah of course yeah Marks and Spencer originals said <laughs> Michael Stamp is on on the back on the arse cheek <laughs> I think um, obviously you, you're well and truly in, invested in this movie, Liam, and I think uh, you've sold it to us in a, in a very um, enthusiastic way. And I, I think I'm on board with you with it, to be honest with you. And considering what you've how you've showed in terms of Nick Love's commitment to the movie process and how he's made this film from with a little budget, and I did write in my notes about the London looking really good and how it was shot was quite tense and things. So you know we're on your side. I think I'm kind of coming back over to your side. And then where I was, which was basically in more of a negative space <laughs> before we started the podcast. Well, that's because you realised um, you were horribly racist towards street people. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not racist, classist. classist. Um, uh, but um, I think, is it, is it, I think, oh, what, I lost my train of thought now. You, you <laughs> Sorry. <up> <laughs> Matt, where would you come at this movie now that we've had this conversation? Um, I don't know. As I say, as, as a, as a, as a, as a, a feat of just sheer will getting this made for three million quid or, or less is impressive I, I would have put this as a much higher budget whether or not that makes it good enough um the plot is confusing i mean it's a really basic plot which they try and f like throw some um twists and turns into it which never really i don't think they really exist um and i, I don't know if i can really forgive seeing ray winston 
banging Riley at well. You know, she goes on to become Peggy Carter for God's sakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It was it was enjoyable though. I mean, you know, if you take your sort of critic hat off and sort of just sit and watch it, um, I think better things have been made subsequently since, which kind of probably put this in a, a, a poorer light. But if you look at this in 2012 land you'd probably go there wasn't anything else kind of like that from like a British perspective um, that's a good point yeah I think maybe if I was going to watch the Sweeney I'd probably just watch Hot Fuzz instead um, <laughs> and get my sort of uh, Americanization of the English police force fix from that well Liam is that okay for you? <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm just glad that I've managed to turn you around a little bit on this movie, 100%. Because, like I say, I mean, I, I don't even think it's Nick Glove's uh, best film. I think uh, I think the best thing he's done so far is his remake of The Firm, which I think is well worth checking out if you haven't seen. Um, because that could have so easily been a massive disaster. Yeah. Uh, because Alan Clark's The Firm with Gary Oldman is kind of, you know, considered to be like quite a classic yeah. in many ways. And um, I, I think he managed to do something so different with it because Alan Clark's uh, The Firm is kind of real cinema verite, docu-realism, whereas um, Nick Love's The Firm is, is not that at all. It's a real nostalgia field. Like I say, it's, it's sort of uh, football hooligan. This is England in a lot of ways. And mm. it's it's really, the, the colours in it are fantastic. It, it's totally got that 80s period setting so right. And Paul Anderson is actually the lead in that film. He plays Gary Oldman's role and he's very, very good. Um, he's pretty it, much he's fantastic in everything first. he does, right? I mean, Paul Anderson. It, he is completely. And it was actually Nick Love that discovered him. He was like a ticket tout. And uh, Nick Love was just mates with him and just cast it in the lead of his film. And he just came straight out of the gate as a complete non-actor. Just absolutely amazing, like straight away. And uh, Daniel Mays, who's also a very good actor, plays his kind of uh, the Phil Davis's role. Um, in that is Yeti as well and that is well worth checking out and like I say that really gets the kind of anti-violence message across and I would definitely recommend that but like I say I, I really like the Sweeney I've got a big thing about the fact that like I say he's a mostly working class um, cast I really really like that I, I used to be a big fan when I was a kid of the bill and oh, one yeah. of the things I used to really love about that show is the fact that the majority of the characters were all working class. The idea was very much that, you know, being a copper is a working class profession. And this kind of brings that back very much with those characters. And I, I, I really liked that idea. Kind of, you know, ordinary, decent coppers. I, I really, really liked that. And I, yeah, I get a lot out of this movie. Matt, I think you'll agree we're going to have to let this out, aren't we, the bunker, because of, you know, the way that uh, Liam's defended it with his baseball bat. <laughs> hey, <laughs> you do whatever you feel is the right thing to do, lads, all right. <laughs> <laughs> you've done it, you've done it, Liam, you've, you've convinced us, it's out, it's out in the open, it's been jettisoned. I mean, to be honest, it's hard to keep any Ray Winston film in the bunker, because he just uses his disembodied head and floats out anyway, so... <laughs> Amazing, amazing. Liam, 
thanks ever so much for coming on the podcast and defending the honour of this the magnificent Sweeney. I think uh, it well deserved uh, to be released onto the general public. If we could just shave half an hour off, that would be great. Um, and also, just, you know, what what can we find you doing? Have a little shout out to your uh, podcast and your Twitter handles and whatnot. Yeah, so you can find uh, my podcast Spotlight at Spotlight Pod at uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, you can find us on there. Obviously, we're on all the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the, all the usual places. Uh, we've done like 60-plus episodes um, at this point. Our latest episode is uh, we've started a run of episodes where we get a big kind of Star Trek fan to come on the show and pick um, an episode that they're really passionate about, that they could passionately hate it or passionately love it. Um, and we talk about it with them. The latest episode is with James Dyer from Empire Magazine and the Pilot TV podcast, who's a, a massive Star Trek fan. And he's come on to talk about Chain of Command, uh, which is a very famous two-parter from Star Trek Next Generation, uh, where Patrick Stewart's Picard gets brutally tortured by uh, David Warner's uh, Cardassian bad guy. Uh, and that is a, a really, really, really strong um, episode. So definitely dive in, and uh, whether you're whether you're into Star Trek or not, we will welcome you with open arms. Uh, there's lots of lots of different stuff. Even if you're not into Star Trek, in there, we, we interviewed Richard Donner at one point, uh, which was pretty amazing. Uh, the director of all the lethal weapons and the Goonies and Scrooge and Superman um, and that had nothing to do with Star Trek but if you get the opportunity to interview Dick Donner you take it <laughs> yeah absolutely you're not going to go to him actually no mate unless you've got something Star Trek you talk about you can't come on <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly excellent thanks ever so much Liam take care thanks guys look after yourselves 